You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. My name is Foster, and I will be reading from Psalm 13. For the director of music, a Psalm of David. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death, and my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Looking forward to digging into this with you today. I'm going to pray as we get started. God, we pray that as we explore this ancient song from King David, that you would get its truth into our hearts, that you would cause us to lean into your unfailing love in times of trouble. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're, we're continuing in this summer in the Psalms series, and Each week we're looking at the ways in which we learn to worship God through all of the stuff of life. And today we're looking at Psalm 13. Each week we're asking this question, what is the psalmist saying? How does it connect to Jesus? And how should we respond? Looking at it from those three different angles. And I'd like to begin by just asking you to rewind with me for just a moment to 2020. Okay, I know, I, I did this not that long ago and everybody's like, I don't think so. Uh, I understand, I know you don't want to. But that's the setting of the story that I wanna share. Um, it was during COVID lockdown. Our family, is that funny? Uh, <laughs> I don't know, maybe someone's laughing about something else. Uh, our family had moved, we'd sold our house in Tacoma and we had moved back to West Seattle, sort of. We weren't quite here yet, actually. We were trying to find a house in West Seattle, in the Seattle market, which is very depressing. For those of you guys who have tried to do that, you know. And I was under the pressure, probably mostly internal pressure, but pressure of my new job, which was this job. Um, And George Floyd has just died. And I was trying to figure out and, and learn 
how to speak to the, the issues of race in our nation, but also trying to simultaneously figure out how to preserve our church's unity amid all the division that was going on at the time that we already had because of COVID. I had stress from work. I had stress from our family's upheaval. And, and we were really, as a family, grieving the loss of what we previously had. We had in Tacoma for six years. We had stability we had community, we had familiarity, and we were glad that we were coming back to West Seattle, and I, I should probably pause and just say I'm really grateful that we have, so just in case anybody's wondering that, I praise God that he brought us back here. But it was hard adjusting to our new life, especially with all of these things that were up in the air. And to be honest, I, I was filming sermons in our living room and editing videos for our service each week. And that's probably one of the most depressing things that a pastor can do, just in case you're wondering. We, we want to connect with people, you know, and we're, we're trying to deal with technology. And so that's the setting. And, and one day, my sister calls me, and, and she asks me if I had heard about Joseph. And Joseph was, uh, Joseph was my childhood best friend. And I met him in fourth grade. We spent pretty much all of our teenage years together, every day, nearly. Uh, we played in bands together. When my family moved to Prague in the Czech Republic, he moved with us. He, he and my other friends stayed with us. When we moved back to Bakersfield, California, one of the more depressing places on earth, I lived in a trailer in his family's backyard. I mean, we lived together. We moved to Seattle together. We were roommates together. And along the way, Joseph had left the Jesus who he knew. He had left Jesus for the God of pleasure. Joseph was, if, if it involved pleasure, Joseph was down. He, he was in sexual anything. It didn't matter who, it didn't matter what. Food, alcohol, drugs, if it felt good, Joseph was in. It really didn't matter what destruction it caused him or the people around him. And, uh, sorry. His alcoholism and his cocaine habits were out of control. He was erratic, he was unpredictable. Um, his wife had left him a decade before I got this phone call from my sister. And my friendship with him was pretty fractured. I went back and looked at some of the text messages from around, uh, around this time, and he hadn't responded to any of them for some, some years. I often think of it as similar to someone who loses a loved one to cancer. You know, you, for the whole duration of that disease, even when that person is still with you, your heart is sort of in this process of negotiating the loss, right? And so it wasn't surprising to me that my sister told me on my phone call that Joseph had died the day before. Actually, not even a little bit surprising. Um, if anything, I was surprised that he had lived this recklessly for this long. And uh, the story is that he was brought to Harborview in an ambulance that was called anonymously. 
They didn't even know his name when he showed up. He was John Doe for, for a few days. He was dead on arrival. They found high levels of alcohol and drugs in his system, but actually that wasn't what caused his death. It was blood loss due to lacerations of mirror fragments, if you can even believe it. They still don't know if it was self-inflicted or if it was murder. That is how tragic this story is. And when I got this news, as you can imagine, one of the most painful times in my life. And now, if you can, if you can just hang with me for a minute, I'd like to ask you to think of some of the most painful moments of your life. Times when you were maybe betrayed by someone who you loved. Times when you were feeling stuck in habitual sin or, or some kind of darkness. Times when you lost everything that you had worked for. Times when you faced life-threatening situations or life-threatening illness. For some of you, I talk about all these things like they're in the past and you're saying, no, this is what I'm going through today. This is today. Now, the reason why I'm asking you to consider these experiences is because I want you to consider how you responded in the middle of them. How did you respond in some of the most painful times of your life? Did you numb out on food and entertainment and intoxication? Did you wallow in self-pity and get stuck navel-gazing? Did you try to harm yourself? Did you lash out in anger toward the people around you? If you knew God at that time, what happened with your relationship with Him? Did you feel like He was distant or absent? Did you, you know, shake your fist at Him or your middle finger at Him? Or did you turn to Him? Did you bring Him your pain? That's what I want you to consider. See, while no one enjoys going through painful seasons in life, many cultures throughout history and even today, they've had healthy ways of dealing with the negative emotions like anxiety and grief and fear. But we live in a society that tells us that our life's purpose is to be happy and so when you have negative emotions, try and get as away from them as quickly as possible. you got to bottle it up or drown it out. But whatever you do, do not feel them. And definitely don't turn to the God who loves us, who can help us, who can heal us and actually do something about it. And no one has to teach us this. Uh, way of thinking. This is just what we learn by being in the culture that we're a part of. And so I want you to think about when you experience spiritual, emotional, physical, relational pain, how do you respond? This psalm teaches us that God's love never fails. Amen? God's love never fails. And so we should praise him through our pain. And the psalm begins with 
this header at the top for the director of music, a psalm of David. And we find those words actually in the original Hebrew text. This is part of what we would consider inspired by God. And it's showing us that this is a psalm that was written by David himself or possibly what they would sometimes do is write psalms in the honor of that person. Perhaps this was written in his honor, but I think probably this was written by David himself. And it says to the director of music, or for the director of music, I want you to see that this psalm, it was designed to be sung, which is why we sing laments in our services. It's a key part of our worship. And like many laments, this song begins by questioning God. Did you catch that? It said, how long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? David is pouring out his soul before God. He's questioning God and he's doing it because he's in pain. How long will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? And more than just being in pain, David is confused. He's confused. God had promised to never abandon him, and yet he feels abandoned. And so this is confusing. See, when David talks about God's face here, he's talking about God's covenantal, relational presence. He's talking about God's face. He's talking about his covenantal, relational presence. In other words, if you want to think of it simply, when David's talking about God's face, he's talking about God's grace. And so God's face being hidden is a little bit like someone turning their back on you. David's saying, God, where are you? You are nowhere to be found. Why does he say that? He says it because his soul is in pain and he has three pieces of evidence that he's bringing before God, saying these are the causes of my pain and God, I'm confused. I need an answer. God, have you abandoned me? The first one is, I wrestle with my thoughts. David is wrestling with his thoughts. His mind is racing. He's worrying. His thoughts are spiraling downward. If you've ever struggled with anxiety, you can relate to this. You know a bit of what this is like. You know what it's like to have thoughts that... In some ways, they, they seem to have a mind of their own. It's painful because you already feel like life is out of control, and then now it feels like your thoughts are as well. Some of you guys know that this description, wrestling with my thoughts, this at times in my life describes me. Certain seasons of life, I have struggled quite a bit with anxiety and worry. It's a very familiar subject for me. And it usually comes when I can't see a way forward, when I, I'm faced with something that 
some kind of a problem that I'm facing. I'm trying to solve, you know, someone's mad at me. Uh, something that I'm responsible for needs attention. Someone that I love needs my help. And, and I have trouble seeing a way forward and I have trouble turning off my brain. Sometimes this happens to me on Saturday nights. Honestly, if I'm honest, Saturday nights, as I'm preparing for Sundays, as I'm preparing to preach God's Word, as I'm preparing to lead in worship, my thoughts get the better of me, and I start mulling over things that I'm trying to resolve in my own mind. And what I've learned is that these are some of the most precious times with the Lord. Because I'm anxious due to being helpless. And when I'm helpless, when I'm at my most helpless, is when I'm the most aware of my need for him. And that's some of what's happening with David here in this first piece of evidence. I wrestle with my thoughts. The second piece of evidence that he brings before God and he says, God, have you left me? Is he says, day after day, I have sorrow in my heart. He's going through grief. David has sorrow in his heart, probably for some reasons that aren't necessarily mentioned here. David, for those of you who are familiar with his story, you know that he, throughout his life, went through all kinds of horrible trials. Pretty much from the moment that he was anointed king, he walked right into a minefield. He was under constant attack from the previous king, Saul. Then he lost his best friend, Saul's son, Jonathan. And, and later, his grievous sin of adultery with Bathsheba and then ordering the killing of her husband, it, it pretty much destroyed his family, as you can well imagine, which is to speak nothing of what came even later, of all the infighting that his family endured a lot of it as a direct result of his sin earlier on. David's son Absalom usurps his throne and, and that leads to David having to run for his life until someone finally kills his son Absalom. And in the process, David gets his throne back, but he's lost his beloved son in the process. After David's initial earlier triumphs of things like defeating Goliath, right? David's life is marked by one tragedy after another, largely due to the consequences of his own sin. And so we have to assume that it's during one of these horrific seasons of his life that David writes, day after day I have sorrow in my heart. If you've gone through seasons of loss or seasons of depression, you can relate to David. Your heart is filled with sorrow. Maybe you look back on a time in your life when you had something and now it's gone. Or you look back on a time where you had someone and now they're gone. You thought your life was going to go one way and it goes another. As I was thinking about this this week, it reminded me of so many 
newlywed couples who I've known over the years who enter into marriage with such high hopes. It's like all the buildup of, of every Disney movie they've ever watched <laughs> or chick flick they've ever seen or, let's be honest, every sex scene they've ever watched is all building up to this moment and they're, they're entering into marriage like a bubble just waiting to be burst because their expectations on their spouse are so unrealistic that there's no human being who could ever attain to it. And then those dreams never come to fruition. They struggle to relate to their spouse, to connect. They feel disconnected and they feel a profound sense of loss. And if this is you or, or you've known someone like this, women most often respond in hurt. The men most often respond in anger. All of us need to bring our pain to God so that his love can lift us out of that pit of loss that we are going through. And this is just one example of people who have experienced sorrow in their hearts day after day maybe never even recognizing it or healing from it or bringing it to God. And now returning to this psalm, David said, day after day, I have sorrow in my heart as the second piece of evidence, you might remember, the second piece of evidence that he brings to God saying, God, where are you? It seems like you've abandoned me and it actually gets worse. In the midst of whatever this tragedy is that David's facing, he says his enemies are winning. My enemy is triumphing over me. The situation is dire for David. I mean, this is literally a matter of life and death, which he fleshes out in verses 3 and 4. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. David knows if God doesn't intervene, this will be the end of him. His enemies are coming for his life. The greatest win for his enemies is David's greatest loss, the loss of his own life. And it's important here to pause for just a moment and to think about David's enemies, Enemies get brought up a lot in the Psalms. If you've ever read them, you might have noticed that. And we need to understand the ways in which the psalmist's enemies might be different from ours. Otherwise, there's this disconnect. When we read about it, it just feels, you know, like you're going, I, I don't have the mafia coming after me, right? So what, how can I relate to this and, and this psalmist's enemies? You might think, well, I, I have people that I don't get along with. Is that what this is talking about? People you know, that I avoid in the hall at work or people who hate me because I'm a Christian or people, maybe family members I've had a falling out with. Praise God that, that we don't have quite the same level of enemy that David has here. And those might be counted as enemies, but I think that when we consider this as Christians, 
that we need to think about the enemies that Ephesians 2 tells us about. Ephesians 2 tells us our enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is everything in society that opposes God and his ways. So false ideologies, cultural norms, systemic injustices that oppose God's revealed will in Scripture. And then the flesh isn't something that's necessarily out there. It's everything within us that opposes God's ways. Things like sinful desires, sinful thoughts, sinful actions. It's any of that rebellion, any of that broken ways that we relate to others or that we relate to God. And finally, the devil is the mastermind behind all of it. The Bible says that there's a spiritual war going on all around us, all the time, behind the scenes, in society, inside of us, and it's all directed by the power of the evil one. He leads the charge of everything that opposes God. And so while we might not have people you know, with voodoo dolls of us planning our demise, we do have real enemies, each of them with the power to destroy us. And just as with David, our enemy's greatest win is our greatest loss. And so in the psalm, David is feeling all of this pressure of these enemies closing in on him. But remember that it's just one of three pieces of evidence that David brings before God. He says, I wrestle with my thoughts, that's anxiety. I, I day after day have sorrow in my heart, that's grief. And my enemy is triumphing over me, that's fear. And do you remember why he's bringing this evidence to God? It's because David is confused. He thought God was committed to him. And David's looking at this evidence and he's saying, it feels, God, like you've forgotten me. And yet God has not forgotten David. He looks at the evidence and he says, God, it feels like you've hidden your face from me. And yet God has not hidden his face from David. See, God made a promise to David. He made a covenant with him. It's recalled in Psalm 89, 28, and 29. It says, I will maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line or his, uh, his legacy, his offspring forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure, which means forever, eternity. God had promised David that he loved him. God has, had promised David that he would bless him. And so David is confused, and just like David, we get confused when the life that we had imagined God would give us is different from what we actually got. We get confused when what we got is different from what we thought that he had promised. And so this situation that David is going through, this is more than just disappointed expectations like the example of the newlyweds that I gave to you earlier. As Christians, we know that God promises us abundant life in Jesus, John 10.10, 10. amen? 
that God promises us that he will never leave us or forsake us. Amen? Hebrews 13.5. But sometimes what we experience feels like that is not the case. When we experience being sinned against, when we feel stuck in our habitual sin, when we experience the consequences of our sins or we go through seasons of anxiety, depression, mental illness, when we suffer or those whom we love suffer or we experience grief or loss, we wonder why it feels like that abundant life isn't with us, why it feels like God has forsaken us. You ever felt like God was far away? I'm going to say something that you probably didn't expect me to say in this sermon. Sometimes when we feel like God is far away, He is. And I'm not talking about God's omnipresence. That's, that's the truth that God is not bound by space or time, that He is everywhere at once, which is a good truth, a beautiful truth that is so good for us that no matter where you are, God is with you. Amen? I was at Pike Place Market a couple days ago with my daughter Naomi, and we were at a donut shop, and they had a tip jar, and it said, God sees when you don't tip. We're like, yeah, okay. Amen. <laughs> Don't know what he thinks about that, but he sees it. Um, that's a good example. That's true. But here's what I mean when I say that he can be far away. Remember when we were talking about God hiding his face from David? Sometimes God withholds the feeling of his presence in order to discipline us in order to teach us in a new and deeper way about Him, His love, our need for Him, our need to trust in Him. And so we can make a huge mistake when confusing God's discipline with God turning His back on us. If we assume that God's presence always feels good, we think our pain means he's left us. But you see, God's presence is not always pleasant. You ever thought about that? Let me prove it to you, give you one good example. In the presence of sin and rebellion, God's presence may feel very painful, amen? But in his grace, in the middle of our pain, as we trust in him for deliverance, he actually removes all that stands between us, and we begin to experience him differently. What was once painful becomes sweet. Our experience of his presence is transformed because we are transformed. Some of you have experienced that. How does that happen? It begins by coming to him and being honest with him about what we're going through. One of the words that a lot of Psalms of Lament use is the word complaint. I bring my complaint before God. This isn't complaining like the Israelites in the desert, like, Moses, why did you bring us out here to die? That's just kind of whining, right? 
This is a different kind of complaint. This is crying out to him. This is telling him how we truly feel. No holds barred. Calling on him to do something about it. Appealing to his promises. And did you know that God can handle it? God's not afraid of our pain. He's not surprised by it. He sees it. He knows it. He actually knows us better than ourselves. But he's also not indifferent toward our pain. And you know, we're conditioned so much to believe what I said earlier, that, we, that our purpose in life is to be happy, that we've become so nearsighted that when we experience pain, we think that there's no good purpose for it. But just because we don't know why God allows us to experience pain doesn't mean He has no purpose for it. Isaiah 55, His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so when we realize this, we can come before God with our ugliest pain without our faith, you know, evaporating. In fact, our faith can actually grow We can actually learn to trust in Him and hope in Him through our pain, just like David. See, despite David's thoughts spiraling out of control, despite his sorrows not letting up, despite the fact that his life was hanging in the balance, David is expressing hope in God, hope amid what seems hopeless. He maintains his faith in God rather than taking all of those three pieces of evidence that we've just looked at and saying, God, you've turned your back on me. I'm turning my back on you. He knows that there is literally nothing else that will save him. As he said, God, apart from God giving light to his eyes, David is dead in the water. He knows just how powerful God is. But you see, if God were only powerful, that wouldn't necessarily be good news, would it? That wouldn't give us a reason to turn to Him in our pain. But more than simply knowing that God is powerful enough to do something about His circumstances, David knows that God's love never fails. And that is what leads him to praise God in his pain. Verses five and six said, but I trust, I cast myself on your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Can you imagine singing like this in your darkest moment? How is David able to praise God through his pain? He says it right here, God's unfailing love. And David isn't just having some intellectual assent to God's unfailing love. He's actually recalling ways that he's experienced it. 
He knows that God is good because he says God has been good to him. Now, this word, in the, this, we're using the NIV translation today, doesn't quite get to what this is saying. The, the ESV says, you have dealt bountifully with me, that God's goodness is just kind of overflowing in his life. How can David say this? Because God has already given him salvation, it says. God's already saved him before, not just in an eternal sense, but in a, in a very temporal and immediate sense. God has preserved David's life in dire situations before. And so David can look on God's faithfulness in the past and have certainty about God's faithfulness in the future. And friends, if you're a Christian, you have even greater certainty of God's unfailing love than David did. Because the second member of the Trinity, God the Son, came as the sign in history of God's unfailing love. He came. Why, why did he come and take on human flesh so that he could suffer with us? As my friend Eddie was reminding me of this week, he came to suffer with us. He came to know our pain firsthand. Christianity is the only religion that introduces us to a God who came to suffer with us. In unfailing love, he became one of us in the person of Christ so that he knows the pain of humanity. And yet amid his pain, he never caved into sin. He never gave up on God's unfailing love. Now at the cross, it, it, it might have looked like God's love had failed. You know, earlier we sang that song, How Deep the Father's Love, and we sang this lyric, the Father turns his face away. That recalled this scene in Mark 15 that says, and when the sixth hour had come, that's high noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., not typically a time when there's darkness over the land. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Son of God who enjoyed unbroken fellowship and favor with God the Father for all of eternity, now in some mysterious way experiences what it's like to be forsaken for the first time. Why? Because he was bearing the sins of the world. Your sins, my sins. He was the place of God's judgment on sin. in order to redeem us from the judgment of our sin. Jesus experienced the darkness that David dreaded. 
And Jesus' enemies in that moment seemed to be exalted over him. Our enemies, Satan, sin, and death, or or if you want to say the world, the flesh, and the devil, they seemed to be exalted over him. And so what did Jesus do in his darkest moment? He cried out to God. He prayed Psalm 22, a lament psalm. And in so doing, he fulfilled all of lament psalms. He praised God through his pain. You might remember that in the garden, Jesus prayed to God the Father, not my will, but yours be done. In spite of all the anguish that his soul was going through, he never lost hope. He never doubted God. His pain didn't turn into doubt or distrust or anger because he knew there was hope on the other side of all of it. Though this was the greatest pain, the greatest experience of being forsaken that any human being has ever endured, he knew that nothing, not even his own death, could separate him from God's unfailing love. And so while it it is true that Christians offer the God who is the God who suffers with us, it also offers us the God who suffers for us. This is the gospel. And the gospel is, it's not just that he suffered with us, or that he suffers with us, and that he suffered for us, but that he triumphed over our enemies so that one day we would never suffer again. Isaiah 53 says that he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows, and he did it. He took them. So that this would be our future, friends. Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Get to dwell with God forever. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. They've been done away with. They're over. See, the gospel is what makes us sing. Because otherwise we don't want to sing in the middle of our sorrows, right? Who wants to sing? But when the truth of the gospel comes into our hearts and it goes deep into our hearts, we begin to praise. And as we praise, God's presence actually becomes more palpable. What what seemed like he was so far away, we recognize, no, he's been here all along. Earlier I told you the story of my friend Joseph's tragic death, but I didn't really tell you how I responded. I mean, I told you I wasn't surprised, but I didn't tell you much more than that. Remember everything else that was going on in my life, remember it was 2020, right? June 2nd, 2020. And that I was so overwhelmed with all this grief and pain and stress that 
I had going on that I didn't respond. Actually didn't respond in that moment when I received that news. My heart was too hard to respond. I literally didn't shed a single tear. But I knew that there was something wrong. And, and I recognized that it was as though I couldn't respond. I was unable to. And so I prayed about it. I brought this before God. I asked God, why am I not feeling anything? What is going on with me? And if I remember right, this went on for several days during my prayer time until one night after dinner, it was as though all of that loss from the past few months hit me at once. And the dam just broke. I mean, overwhelming, deep groans, sobbing. It lasted really only for a few minutes, uh, but Emily was there with me and she wrapped her arm around me. It's almost as like God was wrapping his arm around me. And I sensed his presence that had been there the whole time, but that I was too busy, too stressed, too worried, or in too much pain to recognize. And God gave me the gift of his love, this reassurance that he was with me, this comfort that he was with me, that his love would never fail me. And I began to worship. See, God's love never fails, so we should praise him through our pain. If your community group is still working through questions this summer, I want to invite you to ask these questions or just use them for your own reflection. How do you respond when you experience spiritual, emotional, relational, or physical pain? And what would it look like to respond to God's love in the middle of your pain? Let's pray and let's respond to him together now. God, we thank you that we can trust in your promises to never leave us or forsake us even when we feel like it has happened. God, we thank you that your love never fails and that nothing, now that we're in Christ as Christians, nothing can separate us from it. And we pray that we would just bask in your love right now as we sing and as we respond to you in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.